Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast. This is episode two. Uh, my name is Dan Martin. I'm a special effects artist and co-host of this exact podcast that you're listening to. And I'm joined as ever by my co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a screenwriter, a director, and I write about film for a bunch of different places. And I'm very excited to be here talking about Psycho 2. Uh, but before we do that, Dan, why don't you talk a bit about the structure of the show? Um, so, yeah, I guess it, uh, it bears repeating as it's uh, early doors still. Um, every fortnight we'll be looking into the Arrow archives, either an older title or something upcoming. Um, and discussing it in depth, um, and then after that... Yeah, we're going to uh, give some recommendations based on the film that we've watched, um, stuff that we like that relates to the main film in some way, and then we'll also be giving recommendations based on the stuff that we've watched over the past couple of weeks, because uh, Dan and I watch a lot of films, and we've got some weird ones to uh, recommend <laughs> to you. Um, but before we do that, Dan, why don't you talk a bit about the plot of Psycho 2? Right. Well, uh, I mean, the, it's got quite a on-the-nose tagline, doesn't it? Twenty-two. It's been 22 years and Norman Bates is coming home. Um, after the, uh, the events of the first film, they decided that they'd acknowledge the passage of time between the first film and the second film. Uh, and they'd, they'd set it as, as Norman has been decided... It's been decided that Norman is sane now. He was found not guilty for reasons of insanity, and he's being released back into society a, a cured man, much to the uh, the chagrin of some locals. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes back to the site of the of the murder, here in the community in action. Yeah. Which <laughs> which murders. is which his uh, doctor seems completely fine about. Super by the way. fine with that's yeah. that's all right. This will be fine. And then, uh, yeah, he's, uh, the, the motel's been run in his absence by someone assigned by the state, mm-hmm. um, who basically, presumably Joe Spinell was busy. <laughs> but they, so they chose the, like, the most corrupt, sweaty, Hawaiian shirt-wearing American guy they could find. Perfect person to run a, a hotel in the middle of nowhere, which uh, is, has been the site of many killings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely and, you don't want to stray too much from winning formula yeah. when it comes to the uh, hospitality industry. There's only one person better than uh, than uh, the sweaty man to run a hotel, uh, which features lots of killings, and that's the man who did the killings himself. Interesting note. Norman Bates. Yeah. Back. So, Dan, Psycho 2, what did you think of it? I really liked it. Um, I it's been a while since I've seen it. It was really nice to see it at this quality. Um, it was yeah. It it was. Um, I think I'd compounded some elements of of the other sequels into it. Yeah. So it was really interesting watching it again and sort of unpicking those incorrectly remembered details. Mm. Um, but it was really really enjoyable. Yeah. It's, no. Uh, a little long in the third act, perhaps, but, <laughs> but it's really good. Well, I, I love it. I really love it. Um, in 2011, I used to have a horror column for um, Total Film, and I wrote a piece explaining why I feel that Psycho 2 is actually better than the original Psycho, and uh, that didn't go down too well, but um, well, I, I, I you, do love it. Yeah, well, you share that opinion with Tarantino. He said that on record, that he thinks it's the better of the two films. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I can kind of see that because it, it sort of it, it fits a little bit more into Tarantino's sensibilities, I guess. And kind of as a he's a massive De Palma fan, isn't he? And it does feel a bit um, a little bit De Palma-y, but, but not loads because De Palma obviously was approached 
or considered to direct it no. um, initially? Well, that right? in the, so in the extra features on this disc, and we're going a little out of order here, uh, but in the extra features on this disc, Richard Franklin talks about running into uh, De Palma in a car park hmm. and asking De Palma why he didn't do it. That's right, yeah. And yeah. De Palma says he doesn't know, he, he was never asked. That's right, yeah, that's right. And and wasn't he, he was sitting on a golf cart or something because Pacino had chucked him out of the rehearsals for Scarface. Yeah, he was, um, which he was is... not allowed to attend. But not, not like any of the other crew were either. That, that anecdote is in the, I think it's in the scene commentary that he does. Uh yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, um, there's there's a there's a lot of good extras on the disc. So yeah, there's there's an audio interview with Franklin as well, and I, I think that might be where the De Palma story comes from. But anyway, um it's it's very good and you should listen to it. But yeah. um we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about the opening scene um for Psycho Two, which is actually one of the key scenes from Psycho One. Um the the shower scene, the infamous shower scene. Um, and it's quite a, a bold way to open this sequel. Um, he took a bit of flack for that. Oh, did he? Yeah, apparently in the in the press at the time. Yeah, well, it's um, it's it's pretty brave to open your sequel with arguably the best scene from or the most iconic scene from the film you're sequelizing, um, and it's pretty much exactly as it was in uh, Hitchcock's Psycho. But there are a couple of subtle differences including um, they've added a sound effect um, when Marion Crane uh, drags her fingers down the tiles in the shower. Squeak. You hear a squeak. Yeah. And um, it, that kind of quite cleverly ties it to another murder later on, which I'm not going to go into too much because we are, as ever, going to try to avoid major spoilers on the show. But um, if you watch it, keep a, keep a listen out for uh, a, a, a window. When you see a window... Listen, listen. <laughs> Don't look, a, listen. When you see a window. Yeah. Any Every window, time you see a window in this film, just, the just, film, just use your ears, take in the dialogue. All the way through. The <laughs> thing is, Franklin is really good with sound design. Yeah. Like, the, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is so much of it is just him copying Hitchcock. He's gone to such lengths to mimic his cinematography style, his editing style, all that kind of stuff. And yet, it's the sound where he kind of makes it his own. Mm. He threw away the original score. He got himself a new score from Goldsmith. He's mm. added sound to the to the footage from the first film. He's mm -hmm. changed the sound design to the footage from the first film that he uses. Um, and there's loads of really neat little bits of sound design throughout the movie. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that that's potentially why De Palma didn't do this film, because as much as I absolutely love De Palma and I really, really love De Palma and, you know, he's frequently compared to, to Hitchcock and he's a self-confessed Hitchcock junkie. But uh, his sort of stylistic quirks, would I, I think, would be too much for this film. It needed to be a bit more simple um, and a bit more sort of reverential to to Hitchcock's sort of camera moves without, you know, instilling too much of, of someone else's style onto it. Interestingly enough, um, it started out as a TV movie um, and it was only when um, Anthony Perkins sort of officially signed on to do it that it became elevated into more of a sort of uh, a cinematic proposition, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, through the throughout the audio commentary, our writers constantly saying, "Without Perkins, we wouldn't have had a theatrical film." And I think that was very much the the feeling was that it was 
the the studio didn't necessarily feel like this was something like a particularly valuable property and that's why they were you know they were doing a a sequel with a comparatively unknown director yeah exactly and yeah holland mentions the fact that yeah it, he feels that the studio that, that universal didn't know what they had with um with psycho um and you know it ended up going on to to have um another went up to psycho four didn't it yeah um and obviously Bates Motel as well more recently. Um, it is a character and a dynamic that, that people seem fascinated with. So should we talk a little bit about our favourite scenes? Um, well, I, yeah, I, to be honest, one of my, one of my favourite bits about this watch was that when, I'd first, when I first watched this film, I was, I guess, about 14, hmm. um, and I watched it on a little 14-inch CRT TV upstairs at a friend's house. Um, and didn't realise until years later that the film was in colour <laughs> because it was a black and white TV. That's amazing. But the first Psycho was in black and white, so why would I have thought it was weird that this one was in black and white? Of course. Which is interesting because Franklin wanted to do it in black and white. Yeah, I, I think he initially wanted to do it in black and white and then he kind of, um, yeah, obviously the studio didn't want to do that. Yeah. But then he realised the kind of the potential for colour um, and he tried to approach the 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 color as if it were like with the same attitude as filming black and white. Because obviously, some people basically, if you want to shoot black and white, you need to be very considered. You yeah. can't just like flip <laughs> a switch and and make it black and well, white. Well, I've had which that happen some, on one film I worked on. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which some directors do. But um, but it's a very sort of different approach, and he wanted to sort of take that the, the same sort of high contrast well, he, vision he talk, for colour. Yeah, he, well, he talks about basing the colours in the previously demonstrated black and white world on other films of Hitchcock's and the palettes that Hitchcock had demonstrated his enjoyment of. Yeah. So he takes, he borrows palettes from other films yeah. and superimposes them onto this black and white world, sort yeah, of colourising it based on the sensibilities he's, he's guessed at. And uh, we should definitely give a shout out at this point to uh, Dean Cundy, who is the DOP on Psycho 2. Yeah, some great stuff. Um, and he has done like so many amazing films. I'm sure Dan's got a selection of his own favourites, but he did Halloween, uh, The Thing. The Thing the year before yeah. Psycho oh, 2. Like fresh crazy. off of The Thing. Crazy. Um, Back to the Future he did and Jurassic Park. So that is a pretty good tv um what are some of the highlights well, from I'm, his? i'm gonna i'm gonna skip this section because the one i want to talk about is in my recommendation ah, so. all right spoiler alert okay um but yeah um that kind of brings me on to my sort of favorite scene um and that's uh, the moment where um i don't want to go into too much detail but let's just say that norman bates is looking out of a window and the camera is sort of outside the window looking at Norman. It tracks along the roof of the base motel before dipping down all in one shot um, to examine things going on uh, outside the basement. So, yeah, it's this beautiful crane shot. Um, and Franklin sort of talked about that shot and how excited he was to be, to have access to this crane um, for this sort of studio picture. He, Felt like he had, you know, all the toys in the world to play with. Um, but yeah, I just absolutely love that shot. It's so 
you know, dynamic and, you know, Hitchcockian and, and yeah, just really, really cool. It's like, it, like a lot of camera shots. Yeah, in this film. yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that, uh, you know, the, 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 the group of directors that you think of when you think of people who owe a lot of their career to Hitchcock, just a knock back to Argento from, from the last podcast. Yeah. I, I often feel that there's this sort of peculiar connection between them that is greater than just that they all love the same man's work. Right. Um, and so for some reason that shot felt almost more Argento-esque to me than it did Hitchcock-esque. Well, it's funny, it kind of, it's almost like it moves from the 60s to the 70s through Argento and then down to the basement, down into the basement of the 80s. Um, because the this, this styling of, of the kids and, and this, the scene set up itself oh, in that basement is really, really 80s slasher. Um, you sort of expect Jason Voorhees to burst in that room at yeah. any minute. Um, the, the pastel colours of the costume, the the sort of the, the pot smoking and the quick grope in the basement. The exactly. Very, Fuck in the woods, die in the woods, Friday the 13th. And the tension, you know, the feeling that, you know, these kids are in trouble and they don't know it. Um, and, and actually that ties into something else that I, I noticed about this film. It's almost like, I mean, I, there's nothing of it on the extras, so I don't know if I've just, I'm just projecting this onto this film, but it feels like there's kind of a subtle commentary about like 80s, um, late 70s, early 80s movies in the film. So in the scene where um, Norman has a, a row with uh, Dennis Franz's uh, hotel manager, basically when he sacks him, not too big a spoiler, that happens quite early on, um, they have a conversation about um, the operation um, Franz's character is running at Norman's hotel. And uh, Norman says, what kind of motel are you running here? And uh, Dennis Franz's character says, the kind that makes money. They come to party, they stay for a few hours, and they leave. Um, and so, yeah, it's Norman's annoyed that people are doing drugs in the room, you know, there's sex, um, it's all too much for him, and it feels a little bit like a bit of commentary on on the difference between the '60s movies and and the '80s movies. But uh, as much as I, I think you're right, but I also think that that is also there was this sort of puritanical air to horror to justify what was going on oh, that was course. present in the '80s. Yeah, yeah, and it's to some extent it's just more of that, and that is the sort of Friday the Thirteenth morality justification. Absolutely. And and actually, it kind of ties into, because, you know, Psycho had its sort of weird morality. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, there was there's readings of the film that say that Hitchcock was uh, criticising Norman for potential homosexuality. Um, and certainly in Gus Van Sant's Psycho remake, he kind of inverts that to be a critique of masculinity um vince vaughn's toxic masculinity. toxic masculinity vince vaughn's norman bates is very different to um to perkins norman bates and um yeah there's a lot of interesting changes in that film that make it more than just being a shot for shot remake i think the psycho remake's underrated sorry guys um, <laughs> but yeah it's got a lovely crane shot in it with, a, with <laughs> yeah. a hidden edit as they go out of a window exactly like psycho <laughs> <It> too. <does. laughs> exactly so um yeah, what what else would you like to discuss about this film, then? Um, I want to talk about The Belly of the Beast. Right, uh, yes. The Belly of the Beast is, and this is something that I, I find fascinating, and I, I can't help but wonder if the subject matter of The Belly of the Beast was actually the inspiration for the whole movie, 
for the plot of the whole movie because um, so Tilly's character in the film is reading a book, The Belly of the Beast, um, when she first stays the night at the Bates house. Before you go on, yeah, I need to stop you. No, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off on the spoilers. Okay, good, good. So good. basically, <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm not going to talk about the end of the Belly of the Beast, so that I'm not talking about the end of the movie. Yeah, but they are very aligned. So if you if you are interested in what I'm saying, look up or read the Belly of the Beast, um, or more importantly, read about the man who wrote the Belly of the Beast, yeah. um, a chap called Jack Abbott, um, and his real life story after the book so the book is a collection of letters that he wrote while he was in prison and it's about the the horrible nature of the american prison system and the beast in the title of the book refers to the prison so just like jack abbott um norman bates has been in prison now jack abbott was in prison for counterfeiting and manslaughter but he um but not murder so and norman went to prison but he was found innocent for being criminally insane so he didn't get convicted of murder either despite having killed someone um and then in 1981 the same year that the book belly of the beast was published jack abbott was let out on parole he got out of prison this is the year before they start writing the script in 1982 um and then in 1981 and this isn't a direct correlation with the film but if you want to skip ahead 30 seconds in case you feel like it might be a spoiler i'm constantly being told i can't judge spoilers uh, so you might want to skip the tiny bit. Um, after he was released from prison in 1981, um, the real Jack Abbott killed someone in a in a brawl and went back to prison, which is a very interesting sort of like connection about how the time in prison sort of changes you and, and all that kind of stuff. So when you say you're going to leave out the spoiler part... Well, not all of that happens to Norman. Mm, interesting. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't. Shall we go back and do a disclaimer? <laughs> no, it's fine. You did say to skip forward 30 seconds, so hopefully people are rejoining us now, or they watched Psycho 2 before. I'm pretty they sure they have. This, but <laughs> they can't actually buy it until the 31st. Um, That's true. So we're sorry. We're really sorry. Um, Look at you it, if you are seeing it for the first time on this beautiful print, but I suspect most people listening to the podcast have seen it. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, and we can't sort of wrap this up without going into a bit more detail about Anthony Perkins in this film, because obviously he was, I wouldn't say reticent, because, you know, they offered him the film and he didn't say, he said that he wanted to read the script first, which I think is perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he did sign on for it. And oh my God, I think he's incredible in this film. Like there's so many weird, special decisions that he makes. He's so sort of vulnerable and fragile. And and also it's almost like he's adding a little bit of comedy at times. I think Perkins did want to be a, a, a comedic actor. Um, there's a moment where... Um, Again, not a spoiler, I don't think, but <laughs> he's describing, maybe skip 30 seconds ahead, I don't know, but he's just... Just missed the podcast. Just stop, stop listening. Turn it off. Rubbish. Um, yeah, no, uh, Perkins mimes the act of poisoning his mother when he was younger, um, and do keep an eye out for that, that moment and, and pay close attention to his movements because it's a really special little moment within a very cool scene. When I was 12, my mother went mad. So I put some poison in her tea, you know? I'm, I'm all right now. But... 
Yeah, it's interesting. It, the, the, the moments of comedy never feel like they break character. It's Not always really beautifully wrapped up in the performance. And I think that's one of the things that makes Perkins so good in this. Absolutely. When you hear interviews, and some of which are on the disc, there's a nice audio interview with Perkins, and then there's a really weird one, <laughs> a video interview um, on the disc uh, on a, from Australian TV. Uh, that's worth checking out, just for the very like the car crash intro. But, yeah, it's more the questions than Perkins. Yeah, yeah, himself. no, Perkins is a consummate professional, but no, but when he talks about it, about taking the film, um, it's interesting. He's obviously glad that he took it, and it's a very good film. He's very proud of the film. Um, but when he talks about any reticence that he might have had, he talks about being forever associated with a single role. And occasionally, he talks. He mentions that he feels like he missed out on comedic roles and that kind of thing because of performance in the first film mm. and how people thought that that was all he'd be able to do um and so it's interesting to see him bringing aspects of that into the character for this one he's excellent isn't he? he's just excellent yeah he's really excellent right we should we should probably wrap this up and move on to recommendations can i ask you a quiz question first Sam? you can <laughs> <laughs> the gap between psycho Yes. And Psycho 2. Yes. Is 23 years. Right, let's move on. No, no, just under 23 years, but... No, it's 23, anyway. It's, from it's, release to... No, no, it's, it's a matter of like 10 or 15 days under 23 years. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is that it is not the longest gap between a Hitchcock film and its sequel. Right. Can you remember or work out what the longest gap between a Hitchcock original and a sequel, either by Hitchcock or not Hitchcock... Oh, of that property. I don't know, is. Dan. I don't know. It's the birds. That's not the question you asked. Yeah, it is. You birds asked... and birds too had you... a longer gap between them. No, no, the question was, what is the longest gap? You didn't talk about, you didn't say what film had the longest gap. Oh, what has the longest gap? Fine, it's 31 years, just under 31 years. Okay, good. Fine. Well, I'm glad very we fine. did that. It's not very good, the sequel. I haven't actually seen it. It's not worth it. Go watch the Rene Cardona Jr. remake instead. It's Now, what was the... Um... What was the zombie sequel that featured zombie birds? Uh, that's was that like zombie, zombie four? five, zombie four five. or five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah watch, watch that as well. But this isn't. <laughs> our, these aren't our recommendations, no. by the way. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I sort of tacitly endorse Beaks the movie, the Renault Cardona Junior. Actually, we did. Um, we watched that together, didn't we? We did a bird marathon, we bird did horror a marathon, bird horror marathon. Uh, we watched Blood Freak. We did. That was amazing. Which is incredible. We watched the Giant Claw. Oh, God, that was a great night. We watched some YouTube video of some owls. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, an art, it was an art short. Yes. I think it was just called Owl or Being an Owl, <laughs> something like that. And it was just like, <laughs> it was Radio Shack video overlay of the same footage of an owl a lot. And after that horrifying glimpse into how we <laughs> spend our lives, <laughs> um, let's do some recommendations based on this movie. Why don't you start, Dan? Um, I'm going to start with what might be an obvious choice to some, um, Road Games. Um, it's, Amazing. It's a Richard Franklin movie. Um, it's probably the best example of how incredible he can be with sound design. Mm. Um, the the music cues in it and the constant faking out of diegetic and non-diegetic music in it yeah. is gorgeous. But it's also, most importantly, the film that earned him the nickname Kangaroo Hitchcock mm -hmm. um, and which then sort of got him the role of director on Psycho 2. And it has a Hitchcock cameo in it, doesn't it? Uh 
Do you remember the pile of magazines? Oh, um, yeah, there is. There's a magazine cover with a picture of, with Hitchcock on it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's such oh, a good film. That's a great, great show. And actually, um, so when they were casting that film, Franklin uh, had a, an Australian actress in the lead, the female lead, sporting lead, I guess, and the production, the exec said, no, not a big enough name. Uh, you need someone bigger. And so he phoned up his classmate, John Carpenter, um, <laughs> and got Jamie Lee Curtis's number and gave her a bell. And she agreed to do it. And actually, she was originally mooted for the role that um, Meg Tilly plays yeah, Mary. in Psycho 2. Yeah. And, and actually, another interesting fact about that is that Carrie Fisher auditioned for the role of Mary, um, which is uh, which obviously in the year that Return of the Jedi was released, would have made the film a slightly different proposition, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. And kind of good on them for not necessarily going for the star power um, and, and going for who they saw being right for the role instead. And Meg Tilly is, we didn't mention her. In yeah, she's talk, fantastic. But she's so fantastic. Carrie Fisher, also fantastic. I love Carrie Fisher so much. But, but I can't, not fantastic in Psycho 2. But I can't imagine anyone <laughs> other than Meg Tilly playing that role because she's, she's mesmerising. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. There's a there's a fun game, so another minor spoiler alert, but more, <laughs> more contextual. There's a fun game in the movie to play. Who is being uh, Mrs. Bates in every version where you may or may not see her? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a stand-in. Sometimes Franklin's getting a random actor to play them. It's kind of a, it's a little cine trick. It's a cheat. Yes, that's my thank you Blu-ray moment actually. Which I did another thing I didn't mention in the main thing. Isn't it good that we're? Oh yeah, um, let's go back to <laughs> no, thank you Blu-ray. Thank you Blu-ray. <laughs> so um, this is the first time we talked about the basement scene, and you, mind, you know, skip skip ahead thirty seconds, but um, you do see the kids do see uh, a Mrs. Bates, <laughs> and this is the first time that. I could identify that actually is um, Meg Tilly playing the, that that part at that moment, which isn't really a spoiler because it's got absolutely there's just no way that that character was doing that at that moment. So it's just a fake out. It's just a fake out. So it's either a fake out or you know they didn't have anyone who was prepared to dress up in that costume that day. The standing uh, was sick. The standing was sick or whatever. But um, yeah, I've only ever seen this on my VHS, which. I've kept a selection of um, my favourite VHSs and Psycho 2 is one of them. And yeah, I've only ever seen it on that and it was too blurry to make out before. But now I can see it as the actress. So thank you, Blu-ray. My thank you, Blu-ray moment is a massive spoiler as well. Hooray! <laughs> I think maybe we'll just put a note in the, yeah, let's put in a the note. thing that we're yeah, going to yeah, do yeah, a yeah. few spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Let's record the whole thing again and just do spoilers. Yeah, spoiler cast. Right, start at the beginning. Hi, my name's... No, sorry. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, my Thank You Blu-ray is uh, more of a sarcastic Thank You Blu-ray, actually. Um, when uh, when our hotelier, our, our short-lived hotelier, is dispatched as the first victim of the film, um, oh, yeah. you can see the fishing line uh, hovering across his face for several shots, because they've obviously just chopped out sections of the effects shot for use as, as run-in. Uh, for several shots, you can see the fishing line that's been buried underneath a pre-slip prosthetic on his on his face um, that's then pulled like a ripcord. So as the knife moves across the front of the frame, the cheek opens up for this like yawning wound, um, which is, uh, yeah, it certainly got the film a, a bit of a lambasting for not being restrained. But, uh, but yeah, so you can, yeah, you can see the... See the joins, as it were. Absolutely. And um, that's it's a really cool moment. I am going to skip straight ahead to just... I'm just going to do one recommendation based on this film. I did have a couple, but 
we're we're starting to run run late. So um, I'm just going to recommend that you watch Scream Pretty Peggy, which is a TV movie from 1973, um, and it's kind of part of the wave of post psycho, you know, films with uh, murders and weird family dynamics, um, and it's about a sculptor who hires um, young college girls to take care of his elderly mother and uh, his sort of off-screen sister. And, uh, you know, maybe you can guess what happens based <laughs> on that synopsis. But um, directed by Gordon Hessler and written by Jimmy Sangster um, and it's starring Betty Davis. Like, it's it's got quality throughout. Um, it's just a TV movie, so it might be a little bit difficult to track down. But hopefully at some point in the future... Arrow is going to do a lovely bumper box set of all those amazing TV movies from the 70s that are really hard to get hold of. And um, I have no evidence that this is ever going to happen, but (laughs) it would be nice. Dan? Um, I'm going to do my second recommendation, and then you're going to do your second recommendation, despite what you said, (laughs) because it's good. So stick with it. Um, My second recommendation is a film called The Last of Sheila, it's an absolute gem. If you if you haven't caught it, hunt it out. It's not impossible to find. Um, it's uh, actually written by Anthony Perkins with his good buddy uh, Stephen Sondheim, who was uh, hanging out with him on set quite a lot during the production of uh, of Psycho Two. Um, and it's a it's a sort of whodunit, but it's um, it's a, one of those really satisfying ones where there's lots and lots of clues. And the reveal at the end involves showing you something that you saw at the beginning of the film uh, and saying, see, look, it was there all along. You, you could have figured it out if you'd been thinking about it in the right way, uh, which makes it a really satisfying watch. Yeah. And, um, and it's got a great cast as yeah. well. I'll leave you to discover it. Directed by Herbert Ross, who, um, uh, who, yeah, who did Footloose, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, oh, it's a really, really <laughs> it's, fun film. Um, all right, so uh, my second recommendation is going to be Blowout from 1981, which you uh, can actually pick up on an Arrow disc. Um, <laughs> and it's a it's an excellent Arrow disc, which actually, I think it's got a chat between De Palma and Tarantino on it, so it brings together all these threads that we've been uh, discussing. Um, but yeah, obviously De Palma um, owed a lot to Hitchcock. This might be one of his sort of least Hitchcockian movies, but... It ties nicely to Psycho 2 in that, A, the sound design is obviously fantastic. It's about um, a sound recordist, a movie sound recordist, who accidentally uh, tapes something that could possibly be a clue to a big conspiracy. Um, But the thing that really connects it to Psycho 2 for me is both of them have amazing endings um (laughs) and i'm obviously not going to go into detail about how but um both of them will leave you going just wow and so blowout 1981 brian de palma if you haven't seen it buy the arrow disc hopefully it'll be in the sale when i'm oh yeah sale goes up we'll be up before this yeah uh, so so we've got no idea what's in the sale but if it is in the sale just pick it up straight away blind buy i couldn't recommend it higher yeah, Damn. that that it for your recommendations. Well, that's yeah. my recommendations yeah, based on what we've uh, based on the film, but we can talk about things we've watched in the last fortnight. We certainly can, can't Let's we? Go yeah, to dip into that well a little bit. Yeah, do it, Dan. Start. <laughs> um. So, uh, the first one is couldn't be less related to Psycho Two if it tried. Uh, it's an early sixties black and white 
art film, about 63 minutes long. Um, it's the second film by the director, but his first film's lost to time, so it may as well be his first film. Uh, it's directed by Romano Scavellini, um, who directed Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, mm-hmm. which is often referred to as Hitchcockian, um, I suppose, so maybe there is a sort of a vague connection yep. there. Um, it was banned in Italy. Uh, it's called The Blind Fly as a direct translation, um, but the uh, the translation is actually just the Italian name for the game of blind man's buff. Uh, and it's essentially a uh, a sort of very choppy, aggressively edited uh, film. It's um, it's edited like a piece of music almost, and the music is cut with the visual, so it's very, very, very sharply cut. Um, lots of repeated footage, lots of alternate takes being cut into each other. Very little regard for continuity. Much more style than um, than uh, than follow through, and that mm. that's that thing. <laughs> Sorry, um, that regard, and um, but it's um, it's a really interesting film for two reasons. The first being that it's just a, a nice little art film. It's a, about a guy who's dissatisfied with life, uh, his place in the world, uh, and sort of has a enough of an existential crisis that he has a bit of a, a violent breakdown, uh, which is why it was banned. But mm. it's unbelievably tame considering <laughs> where. Italy would go mm. two short decades later, mm. or less than two short decades later, you know, a decade and a half later, mm. um, where they'd become kind of the benchmark for unnecessary violence. Um, a, uh, yeah, a, a, a pool that Scavellini himself would draw from. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's really, if you can find it, it's really worth checking out. And that, that's a recommendation for me because I haven't watched that one. So, um, yeah, that sounds really good. So, Dan, do you like Robocop? I do like Robocop, so I'm a big fan of Robocop. It's just been the 30th anniversary, hasn't it? Uh, today, as we record this. Um, do you like ladies? Uh, yeah, I'm partial to ladies. <laughs> that sounded incredibly creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I quite like them. <laughs> keep a couple about the house. <laughs> uh, one of those is a cat, but anyway, right. Um, <laughs> this is seamlessly taking me into the reveal that I'm going to recommend. King of links. Lady Battlecock um, from 1990, a Japanese film, um, which is a complete rip-off of Robocop. I think, you know, no one's going to sue me if I say that. Um, Just watch it. Uh, But instead of being a man, it's a lady. Um, And it's not even a cop, actually. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She's a, she's a, a tennis player, a champion tennis player who gets attacked by a terrorist cell called Team Phantom. Um, and uh, luckily the attack happens in a place where she can be rebuilt into a cy- uh, cyborg cop. Um, not even a cop, someone who has a vendetta against these people. Um, but unfortunately, Team Phantom have a psychic bodybuilder on their side um, who they use to attack Lady Battle Cop, Lady Battle Tennis Player. Um, <laughs> You may be able to tell from uh, my description, it is a very fun and silly film. And if you haven't seen Lady Battlecop, then it will uh, entertain you and your friends if you can find it. Bjorn Cyborg? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Sorry. <laughs> that makes up for all the <laughs> how long it took to get there. Right, Dan, what's your next one? Um, so my next one is, uh, it's a sequel. Yes. So it fits with Psycho. Not that this is based on Psycho, it's just something I've watched. Um, but then it's also shot by Dean Cundy, so it could have fitted into that other 
Nice. Collection. Although I'm not sure I'd recommend it if you liked Psycho, you'll like this. Um, but it's the uh, the second Ilsa film, Ilsa ah. Haram, Keeper to the Oil Sheiks. It's, uh, <laughs> it's got all the quality of the first one, but with none of those morally uncomfortable Nazi scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's got plenty of other morally uncomfortable scenes. Yeah. Um, pure exploitation trash. Um, really fun. <laughs> much, much better than number three. Uh, and yeah, like you, you could probably get away with having the poster up in your house, uh, as I did for a few years. <laughs> Unlike the first one, which does have a big swastika on it. Yeah, don't want to put that up on the wall. No, <laughs> um... but yeah, it's um, it's a it's a fun thing, and it is interesting to see. Uh, I think unlike the first one, secretly shot on the set of Hogan's Heroes, they actually had a bit of money for this one, and they um, mm. they built the the bits, the the tents <laughs> that it's largely shot in. Um, it's quite nicely photographed. Well, um, speaking of, of Nazis, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend that you go and see Dunkirk. Dunkirk, Dunkirk, Dunkirk. Um, though they don't actually mention Nazis in it. Um, the, the, the Germans are referred to as the enemy um, exclusively. The word Nazi is never used in the film. Um, mm. It is an absolute tour de force masterpiece. It's an experience like... Uh, I've never had an experience like it at the cinema. I saw it at the IMAX, the BFI IMAX, which is the largest screen in Europe, so I was a little bit spoiled. But um, it's an overwhelming, all-encompassing, just magnificent experience. Um, I feel it's Nolan's best film. I feel like it's going to win him the Oscar. I think I said on Twitter after I came out and I was still sort of on a bit of a weird, shell-shocked, adrenaline high such a thing exists um i said on twitter that if nolan doesn't win the oscar for it i'm gonna retire from film criticism so <laughs> come on the academy <laughs> and just default to liking everything <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah honestly it's it's magnificent and i think it's out it is out when this podcast goes up so um if you can get to an imax there's been a little bit of sort of criticism online that people are saying you have to see it at IMAX but uh, believe us we're saying that because we, we want you to have an amazing experience and there is nothing like the experience that I had at the IMAX watching Dunkirk so yeah please go see it. Nice um, my third and final recommendation uh, is Wages of Fear which ties in nicely ah, to Dunkirk beautifully because I saw the Criterion 35mm print at the BFI which was being programmed as part of the Nolan like Road, program yeah road yeah. to dunkirk road and, to dunkirk you can definitely see the connection they're both incredibly tense but anyway sorry, i am dunkirk. no that's all right i'm yet to see dunkirk i'm looking forward to it um it was my fourth watch of wages of fear oh, uh, i so love the film uh it was oh it's incredible i love it so much i don't yeah i don't really i went to, the very first time i saw it i went into it blind i had the criterion disc just a, it was a blind buy just you know sometimes you just pick up a disc because you trust the distribution company and uh, I stuck it on I didn't know what it was and it was like somehow it had slipped me by and it's an absolute blinder um, it is re often regarded to as the tensest film ever made mm. and I do think it kind of lives up to that one of the nice things about seeing it at the BFI was having seeing an entire it was in BFI one nice big screen um, and hearing the entire audience hold their breath in mm. unison, that a sharp intake of breath mm. during a couple of scenes, just wonderful. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I mean. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch it. It's amazing. Now, I really am going to skip my last recommend recommendation here because we are 
we do need to sort of cut a bit of time. So um, tweet me if you want to hear what my last recommendation of, of the week was going to be. Um, but we need to go into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra so, features. Um, what so, have we got on the disc today? Uh, well, on this special, special disc, we have, for the first time, some lovely contributions from our dear listeners, um, who I'm going to refer to as Arrowhead until someone comes up with a better, <laughs> a better alternative. So, um, Dan, why don't you start with some of the questions that we got about Psycho 2? Uh, okay, yeah. So, Pat Kelman emailed in, hello, Pat, uh, and asked us if we had a favourite uh, Tilly. Um, yes, now Dan Dan put out a tweet asking for people to uh, give us questions uh, about Psycho 2, and the first one we got was from Pat Kelman. Who is your favourite Tilly? Meg Tilly or Jennifer Tilly? Dan? I... It's a difficult one. I don't think I knew the, the family name as such when I first saw Psycho 2, mm. and I certainly, as great as Meg Tilly is... She didn't. Her name didn't burn into my mind in the way that Jennifer's did when I saw Bound for the first time as a teenager. Right. Um, so I'm probably going to have to say Jennifer Tilly. Um, and there's a weird little cosmic connection um, between Jennifer Tilly and Psycho Two, apart from the fact her sister's in it. Um, obviously, Tom Holland wrote it, and he also um, created the Chucky universe. Yes, um, indeed. Which uh, Jennifer Tilly is part of. Um, as for my favourite Tilly, I'm going to have to go for either Meg Tilly because she's so good in Psycho 2 or Chris Tilly, um, who is so good <laughs> when he was at IGN and is still good today. So there oh, we go. Lovely, lovely Chris Tilly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, what's the next question about Psycho 2? Uh, the next question about Psycho 2 comes to us from uh, Tim Coleman, uh, who says it was written by Tom Holland near the start of his career, can we see hints of his future films here? Well, that's an interesting question. I feel that... Now, hmm, Billy Wilder said that... Um, he basically said anyone can write dialogue. Like, there's loads of people who can write good dialogue. But there's only so many... I think he said five great constructionists... Um, and for me, Tom Holland is one of the great constructionists. Um, yeah, I think it's so. A, sorry. Fright Night is one of the best scripts. I, I, I mean, I watched it. We watched it together. Watched recently. it again recently. Yeah. yeah, and it's so tight. It's all. It's, it's Back to the Future levels of, yeah. and, and that's another example of a really well constructed script. Back to the Future, um, which obviously he didn't write, but Dean Cundey did shoot anyway. Yeah. I'm going way off the point. Um, yes, I do think that you can see evidence there because Psycho Two is just so beautifully constructed. Um, there's lots of plates spinning. Yeah, at all I times. think I'm going to say no, but for Ooh. exactly the same reason. Okay. <laughs> in that he is a good enough writer that he lends himself to the project perfectly. Oh, interesting. And so each project exists independently of his other work. He's not borrowed from it. He's not yeah. retreading the same themes. It's that's really true. I, yeah, I, th I think he's he's good enough that the works are unique. Mm. So you look at something like Child's Play, which you mentioned, or Fright mm. Night, like they're. They're completely standalone projects, and that you, 
he's a good enough writer that you wouldn't know that they were written by the same person. Absolutely, but but yeah, that that's not going against my point. They can still be well constructed. And, oh no, and, I'm not saying I'm, I'm saying I agree with all of that. Oh good, but because of that, I'm saying no, you can't. Whereas okay. you're saying because of that, you can. Right, we're having a domestic. <laughs> um, there's one more, isn't there? Uh, there is indeed. Um, so uh, Huck Pump <laughs> on Twitter um, said uh, Psycho Two is one of the best horror sequels. Which other horror sequel could Arrow look into? Uh, and his suggestions are Omen 2, Poltergeist 2, and Exorcist 2. Um, obviously, Exorcist 2 is not Exorcist 1 or 3. <laughs> but no, it has its, I mean, has that, that would be my pick, Exorcist 3. If Arrow is going to do... Oh, God, if Arrow could do an Exorcist 3... Oh, imagine. Oh, it is so oh, no, crisp. Uh, I, I Honestly, one of my... I th- in fact, my favourite ever horror performance um, is Brad Dourif and, and Exorcist God, 3. he's good in that. It's unbelievable. How he didn't win an Oscar is... is the Oscars are a disgrace. it's a horror film. The Oscars some. are a disgrace. <laughs> I hope you don't give Nolan an Oscar for Dunkirk so I can retire from film criticism so I can't support you anymore. So Academy. you just automatically like everything. This is getting cut, isn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, Exorcist 3, please, Arrow, please. Dan? Yeah. I God, I don't know. There's so many. There's so many. Arrow have done a load of the sequels I really like. Their, their Dawn of the Dead's really good. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, like, it's... Horror is, you know, horror and genre film is obviously one of the areas where sequels are most rife. Mm. But also, they're one of the places where you just get these amazing gems coming out of nowhere. And you can find fantastic films down the line of a, a sort of a floundering franchise, mm. which can suddenly provide a, a, a really nice insight. I'm a huge fan of Friday the 13th Part 9. I'd love to see a really good Blu-ray of the, of the uncut version, which at the moment, as far as I know, is only available on the French... Uh, French-Canadian DVD. Uh, that's how I've got it, anyway. Um, and it's... Yeah, it's... Uh, KMB did the effects. It's absolutely balls-to-the-wall crazy um, with the uh, with the gore in it. It's really over-the-top. It's really fun. Um, it's not super serious, but in a really good way. Um, it, it it doesn't flounder like the, the franchise was for, had been for a while after that point. Um, and it's absolutely great. That's great. I really love that film. I'm just going to quickly run through some of the other sort of emails and tweets that we've got, um, not not related to Psycho 2. Um, Corliss, uh, thank you for your tweet, and uh, we would also love to do um, some shows based on Arrow's Japanese films, and that will definitely, definitely happen. Absolutely. Um, Matt Griffin, um, we are going to cover the cover art, and in fact, there's an extra feature coming up that will... Um, interest you i think uh very shortly and just thank you to alex Bowley and uh to jeremy quintana for your lovely emails and um keep them coming and we may well read them out on the show how can they email us some they can email us by going to their computers <laughs> firing up their um their email server and sending an email to arrow video podcast at arrowfilms.co.uk and we read them all and as it turns out dan replies to them all so um, <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah thank you so much for for writing in and on to that other extra feature um i got on the phone to sean hogan the producer of future shock the incredible uh 2000 and ad 
2000 and AD, 2000 AD documentary, um, which is wonderful. And I got on the phone to him to talk about a few things related to that. Have a little listen. Hello. Hello, Sean. It's Sam. How are you? Hey, hey Sam. How's it going, mate? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, I'll go straight into it so I don't waste too much of your time. Um, uh, no worries. But, um, yeah, uh, I watched the film yesterday and absolutely loved it. So, um, no yeah, congratulations. It's really, really cool. Um, and obviously, I know you as a director, um, but you were the producer on this one. Um, yes. So, how did you feel when you first found out Arrow was going to be releasing Future Shock? It was great. I mean, so the thing was, it's kind of the doc had kind of a slightly tangled history because we originally released it last year through Metrodome, um, you know, and it got great, great response and it did well. Uh, but unfortunately, Metrodome then went under. Mm. They went into administration sort of second half of last year, uh, you know. Which was a shame because I had a working relationship with them and, and had done sort of several projects with them. Mm. But, you know, also more to the point, uh, you know, they owed us a significant amount of money for Future Shock, uh, which we never got. Uh, so that was obviously a blow to everyone. Mm. But the upside was um, was that they'd never released a special edition of the film. Right. They, you know, they were they were not interested in putting out a sort of Blu-ray with extras or anything like that. And when we released it, we, you know, we gave we did a lot of press, gave interviews and stuff, and we spoke about the fact that you know we had shot obviously a lot more footage, and mm. you know the first cut of the film that I ever watched was nine ten hours. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, I would watch that film, by the way. But anyway, yeah, no, and it was it was all good stuff. Yeah, thing that was that was the cut of the film. This is this is all the good material that's worth using. But obviously now we have to hone it down. Mm. So people people would ask, well, when are we ever going to get to see this material? And we were like, well, you know, we'd love to put it out there, um, but you know, our distributor weren't interested. So obviously, when when Metrodome went under, it then meant I was able to go to Arrow and say, look, guys you're obviously renowned for putting out discs with all sorts of extras on we have this film plus you know five six hours of extras would you be interested and you know luckily they jumped at the chance which is great it's, mm. it meant we were able to put out the edition we'd always wanted to put out really with new artwork and everything which is you know which is just fantastic that's great and um yeah it sort of that brings me on to the extras because there are like five hours of extras which is uh fantastic and crazy um how much footage did you shoot um specifically on future shock and how did you decide what to include um god i don't even know how much footage there was but to sort of put it into some kind of perspective when we interviewed pat mills mm. we were at his house talking for like a day we must have shot him for nine or ten hours amazing yeah so i mean that was the longest that like, we never went that quite that long with anyone again but there mm. were a few long ones right? you know i think even kevin o'neill we spoke to for about five hours right wow so you know if you tot it up we we interviewed about 40 people i think and you know some of them maybe only for an hour or mm. so but you know it was a lot of footage yeah definitely um I mean, not all of it was was good. Like I say, though, when I when I watched the sort of nine ten hour assembly that Paul had done, mm. that to his mind was all the good stuff. Right. So it was really a case of sort of winnowing down, 
you know a workable structure from that yeah what do we need and what's the story and what isn't the story so that was kind of like partly my job was to sort of come in and sort of say right this is the story and this isn't oh, you know right, cool. but it was just like yeah there was you know there was stuff that obviously we didn't want to lose but you know you have to make it a, a workable edit so yeah of course so you know so i would say what's on the disc now was basically the result of going through everything else and thinking all right this is good yeah you know this is something that's worth putting on there we're not just trying to like put on a load of flannel yeah so it's stuff that didn't necessarily work for the story of the main doc but is still worth watching in its own right yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, you know i would say aside from anything that was legally questionable yeah there was a fair amount yeah. of that we had to take out and that obviously is still not on there yeah um but this is this is basically everything we thought was good stuff great awesome and um arrow obviously always offers variant art um can you talk a bit about the process of selecting the design for the new cover well yeah it was it was um it was kind of slightly random um you know what happened was it was like obviously we'd spoken to jock during the documentary mm. and you know he was great and he was very supportive of it and he saw it when it was finished and really liked it you know and we just never thought i mean obviously with metrodome it was not an issue anyway they weren't going to commission to do artwork but when it so when when it came time to arrow to to release it through arrow obviously we spoke about getting new artwork done and who we might be able to get and I don't think anyone ever really thought that Jock was a possibility initially, just because he's so busy. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but then what happened was that myself and, and Paul and the guys went to the 40th celebration for 2000 AD mm. earlier this year. Um, they had this big sort of celebration in London in February, I think it was. And so obviously loads of 2008 people, 80 people were there. We were just sort of saying hi to people and catching up. And then we bumped into Jock and we said, oh, you know, we're re-releasing it through Arrow. And he was like, oh, that's great. I, you know, I love Arrow. I've always wanted to do something for them. And then Paul was like, would you do our cover? <laughs> and he was like, of course. <laughs> so we were like, shit, okay. Uh, so we sort of immediately ran to Arrow yeah so it was it was really that easy Fantastic. um but it was just i think it was kind of like paul having the brass next just ask <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and it's basically what happened it's so and, cool you know, and like and yeah and he luckily you know managed to find a window just to slot in he didn't have an awful lot of time but mm. he was sort of like i can just about squeeze you in um and i think you know he just he sort of sent through what the, the design I first remember seeing was kind of fairly similar to what he ended up with. Mm. And he did a couple of variants, but they were pretty much all along the same page. I think, you know, it was just a case of like how big Dread was going to be in, in relative to everyone else and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But it was, you know, it was just like, you know, jocks a genius you know you just yeah. you, whatever he does is going to be good and it's like exactly. he sent through two or th two or three variants it was like well 
they're all good which one is our favorite it was you know but they were just variations on the theme it's like he kind of nailed it straight away really as far as i can remember great and um finally um obviously five hours of extras it's a lot uh, could get overwhelming um what's your personal favorite extra what should people watch first how are they going to choose what to watch first <laughs> <laughs> I think most of the extras are probably reasonably uh, bite-sized. Mm. Um, the main one that isn't is, I, I, I imagine there's probably a, a good couple of hours of Pat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's just now, under an hour and a half of Pat. So okay, yeah, right, yeah, it's well, like a whole other film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a Pat Rand thing. Well, I mean, all, all I would say is that like interviewing Pat was like one of the great experiences of my life. I was mm. like, you know, we sat there and talked to him for ten hours, and probably could have sat there all night talking to him. Um, he's just sort of a great raconteur and, and very great. funny, and has a lot to say, obviously. So, you know, whatever's left, whatever we didn't put in the film is still going to be really good stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, it was like if we can sort of capture any sense of what it's like to be in the room talking to pat yeah. then that's great because like i thoroughly enjoyed that that was just like a great experience amazing brilliant so, you know but obviously there's 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 so much more on there it's yeah. like you know neil gaiman gave us a great interview got morris did yeah. you know alex garland there's there's just so much stuff that you know you just won't be able to people to, to be able to see as much of it as possible really. exactly exactly well thank you so much for your time sean that is brilliant and um no thank you sir yeah and the, the discs out on the 31st of july so uh everyone should go out and grab it thank you so much sean and uh speak Thanks, soon sean. cheers man bye cheers. bye and that was Sean Hogan, uh, the producer of Future Shock and also director of The Devil's Business, which is another very quick recommendation if you haven't seen it. <laughs> it is a fantastic, low-budget British film. I love Devil's Business. And there's some good extras on that disc as well. Also, in Arrow News, Arrow are going to be attending London Comic Con for July the 28th and 30th. Uh, they'll have a big stall there. Uh, so pop along and see the Arrow guys. Um, Sam and I might try and make an appearance. We're not officially there. Um, make sure to go and see The Ghoul when it comes out on August the 4th. That's going to be in cinemas. And um, as a little bit of a teaser for you, um, come August, there's going to be an announcement about a couple of new steelbooks. Um, I can't say what they are yet, but as a clue, uh, they're two otherwise unconnected films that have uh, unique takes on what happens after you die. So, yeah. That's an excellent clue. Right, we should probably wrap this up. What yeah. else have we got? We've got to do our, our Twitter handles. Twitter handles. I am Sam Ashurst. You can reach me at Sam Ashurst, <laughs> which is S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T. I will either reply or like whatever you send me, even if it's an insult, Dan. <laughs> so needy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Look, most of my relationships have been based on that premise. So um, carry on, Dan. Uh, right. I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, I'm Dan Martin. Uh, you can tweet me at thirteen finger fx, uh, which is the numbers one three f. I-M-G-E-R, F for Foxtrot, X for X-Ray, uh, and I will 
probably reply. He'll block you. I'll just block you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he won't. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, we really enjoy doing these. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Yeah, and we promise we'll be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.